we are beginning to answer questions that have been submitted online. And if you have one and you do not want to submit one online or that's not something that you do, that's fine. You can, um, you can uh, just hand it to me, write it down. Uh, if you don't want me to know who you are, you can slip it under my, my door at my office or something like that. But uh, we hope to be able to um, answer the questions that are foremost on your mind. And I'm going to attempt to do the best that I can. Uh, with each of them. Here is one of the challenges of doing this is that I you know, only have uh, the same portion of my week to prepare to answer these questions that I would in, in, uh, in teaching from the Bible when, I, when I'm teaching through First to Second Samuel, for instance. Uh, I kind of know what's coming up next and I can read my commentary for that section and, uh, and go with it. Uh, but with answering different questions, um, I don't want to attempt to present myself as a an expert on these things as they come up uh, that's actually one of the um, one of the just overwhelming things of, of going to seminary and doing an MDiv a master of divinity is you get like one course in everything it's a shotgun I mean it's a it's a 93 hour curriculum so it is it's like getting another bachelor's degree it takes about that long to do and and you come to the end of it and you think man am I supposed to be an expert in all this stuff you know there's no way that you possibly could be uh, but uh, as your questions come in I'm going to do the best that I can to answer them and here is the first one uh, that we're going to look at and that is about specifically the Roman Catholic Church I want to begin by reading a couple of verses of scripture Ephesians 4 5 and 6 Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 um, say this. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You notice in that passage there this refrain that there is one. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, what does that mean? Well, Protestants, us, and the Roman Catholic Church have answered this question in different ways. And that's what we're going to be exploring tonight. It's important to also say at the beginning that the question that was submitted is a very narrow question. And I appreciated that because... Um, if, if you were just to ask me, what, what's the difference between the, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church? We could talk about church government. We could talk about the Lord's Supper and baptism. We could talk about uh, salvation. We could talk about their view on Scripture. And then it just goes on and you never uh, really can, can come to an end on it. But the question is there on the top of your page, and I'll just read it. You're welcome to follow along with me. It says this, You don't have to look far on websites like YouTube, to find many accounts of Protestants and evangelicals converting to Catholicism in recent years. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that their religion is the one true church established by Christ and that Jesus himself gave the Catholic Church equal, if not more, authority than the Scriptures. How do we know, here's the question, how do we know that our view of the local church is the one that would be recognized by the early Christians. 
That's a great question because it's very narrow, which means it helps us figure out what our lane is. But it's really kind of two parts, and I'm going to try to address these two parts. The first part is this, the attraction of the Roman Catholic Church. You would not imagine coming out of what was called the emerging church movement that began about 20 years ago or so, or, or even even longer back than that, probably 25 years ago now, which was a bunch of people who were really disaffected, young people particularly, disaffected with the, the very stilted and high church forms, and they wanted to do anything that they possibly could to get away from that. And so they kind of stripped everything down. You would go, it would be very casual, uh, you know, not a lot of structure. Uh, maybe there would be some teaching. The guy teaching might be sitting on a stool. Uh, you know, they were very much trying to get away from the sage on the stage, and they wanted the guide by the side, you know, something like that. Uh, there was also a lot of other things going on, but it's a little shocking, maybe, to see that there is among younger believers today, people in my generation uh, particularly, uh, going toward Anglicanism and going toward the Roman Catholic Church, going toward the Church of England, or, or Anglicanism, which is a very complicated thing, or the Roman Catholic Church. What can explain this? Well, I'm going to attempt to explain why I think, and this is an opinion, this is not thus saith the Lord, this is just thus thinketh Greg. I'm going to attempt to, to give an explanation for why that is. Um, and, and I will also say um, that I have a very close friend of mine. We were trained together. Um, at, uh, I would say very close friend, we, we stay in touch, he lives in St. Louis now. Um, we uh, we, we uh, trained together for ministry in college, we went to the same seminary, uh, he, he, he graduated from Southern Seminary, and he just got back from Denver this week at an ordinand uh, diocese meeting there. He's being ordained into the, the, uh, the Anglican Church, the ACNA, the Anglican, Anglican Church in North America. Uh, I know another guy in South Carolina who was uh, a part of a, you know, an evangelical church there. Uh, now he is finishing up um, his seminary training. He's been ordained in the, uh, the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America. Um, others go toward uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, some go toward the Roman Catholic Church. What can explain this among young people today? Uh, I'm going to quote you a, an article that I have footnoted down at the bottom. I'm just going to read this. A religion news service article on Galley's journey quoted him as expressing dissatisfaction with his own prayers while serving as a Presbyterian pastor. Before discovering the Book of Common Prayer, I was tired of the trite phrases I used all the time, he said. The Book of Common Prayer had these magnificent prayers of praise and confession and thanksgiving, and I thought, that's what I want to say. Such dissatisfaction is common. We live in a world of technological contrivance, which increasingly buffers us from the genuinely human. The superficial confines, uh, confines of our aggregated news feeds and therapeutic spirituality effectively cocoon us in a world of our own making, a world that reduces Christian faith to a commodity that's marketed and then consumed. Add to this the eagerness of many Protestant churches to make God seeker-friendly, and we're left with congregations of people wondering what exactly it was they were seeking. Nothing, it seems, that they couldn't have found in an inspiring TED Talk or pop concert. 
As such souls crave divine encounter that arises above the mundane, materialistic, and digitally depleting mode of secular life, they are instead treated to light shows, projectors, and interactive tweet-the-pastor sermons. In other words, there is a growing tide of younger evangelicals whose little spiritual tummies are rumbling, and they're wondering where can they go to get fed. Uh, here are my suggested reasons of why this is occurring. And I don't know exactly at what rate it is occurring, but apparently it's happening commonly enough to be noticed. Um, the first thing that I will note to you is the rise of secularism. So what's happening is that as the culture is becoming more and more hostile to the claims of the gospel, genuine believers are trying to figure out how they are going to relate to this new environment. Young people growing up, I mean, honestly, I, you know, I have this conversation with, with folks who are older than me. I don't know, I don't know what it is about uh, the difference between younger and older, maybe as you're, as you're young, I'm looking 30, 40, 50 years down the road wondering, am I going to be able to retire doing what I do right now as we watch the demographic trends? Barring some kind of revival that sweeps across our land, this is a very real question for me, right? Folks who are in their 60s, 50s, probably not at, at, wondering about this question, who are in ministry as much as I do. Uh, as secularism is on the rise and is very hostile to the claims of the gospel, those who are younger are making a decision and they're wondering to themselves, uh, some are going one way and I, I see basically people my age going in two different directions. Some are wondering to themselves, okay, it's getting very difficult to continue down the path that I've been going. Let's figure out how much of this I can strip down and still call myself a Christian. That's one path. You ever remember the, the, the movie Pearl Harbor? Um, you know, where at one point the Doolittle's Raiders want to take off of the aircraft carrier. They try to figure out how are they possibly going to have enough gas to get there. And so they start stripping down everything off of this B-52 bomber or whatever it was to try to let this thing take off the aircraft carrier so they could make it to China. You know, they could bomb Japan and then land in China. And they start, they, they finally realize that we need to take more weight off of this thing and they take the guns out of it. And they put, you know, broom handles in there. And somebody in the movie asks, what, are we going to scare them out of the sky, you know, by pointing our broom handles at them? There's one response of younger uh, evangelicals to the rise of secularism to say, you know, basically, I'm, I'm on my way out anyway, but if we can construct a church that can so appeal to the senses, maybe we can catch some of these younger evangelicals before they head toward atheism. If we can attract them with the things that they already like, Maybe we can keep them. And then there are others who are seeking ways to buttress their faith. As in a drought, the roots of the tree plunge deeper into the soil, trying to find some moisture somewhere. In order to move forward in this culture, they're looking backward to the insights of history and tradition. There, they see the richness of the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe it has a, this veneer of authority, of ancient, never-changing truth 
It has this appeal. It provides a stability that is attractive. It provides a, con a constant in a world of constant changes. Then secondly, there's a, what I'll call a least common denominator, upbringing. Many who were discipled in the rather unsatisfying catchphrases are finding that their equipping didn't prepare them for the challenges of 2023. They want meat. They want intellectually satisfying reasons to believe in a robust vision of how to interpret all of life. The Romans road and the plan of salvation and the nine steps to a better marriage was helpful to an extent. But now they want a theology of vocation. How do I think about my job? A doctrine of man and woman in a culture that is saying that there is essentially no distinction between man and woman. And an answer to the problem of evil when there seems to be so much evil around us. They are believers and they're looking outside of evangelicalism for these answers. Friends, uh, before we go on, I'll just say this is why, if you ever wonder why does Brother Greg do some of the funny stuff he does, this is why I do what I do. This is why I read old prayers. This is why, because I think that it is possible to solve these problems that have been rightly identified by the young, younger generation of evangelicals. I believe it's possible to solve them without going toward bad solutions. I'm showing my cards. So what are the differences, really, between Protestants and the Roman Catholic Church on authority? On the authority of the church. We're not talking about salvation. We're not necessarily talking about uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the Lord's Supper or things like that. We're talking about the church. We have to first examine the difference in how we and how Roman Catholics Understand Scripture versus tradition. Scripture versus tradition. Scripture is, that's easily defined, that's easy to, to define. Scripture is the Bible. Tradition has a very high role in the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, it's not what the Bible teaches that is the most important thing. It's what has our church always taught that the Bible teaches. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's what tradition means. We would probably, or because we are Protestants, we believe in sola scriptura, scripture alone. We prize the Bible. There are times when I go up into the pulpit and sometimes I'm teaching from the Bible and in order for me to be genuinely Protestant, sometimes I recognize that I may have to teach something that maybe hasn't always been our tradition. But that's who we are as Protestants. We believe that the Bible is our standard. Now, preachers are imperfect about conveying what the Bible teaches, but we still believe that it is the message of the Bible that is our standard. Roman Catholics understand this in a slightly different way. Um, maybe I should not say slightly, in a very different way. Uh, here's Matthew 16, 13 through 20. One of the linchpins of the difference between the Protestant and the Roman Catholic understanding of the church. Rome, uh, Matthew 16 says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. 
Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of his prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. What, what, what Jesus is doing here is a play on words. Maybe you've heard this before. In Greek, rock is Petros. And Peter is Petron, right? It's, it's a play on words that he's saying here. And you are Petron, if I'm getting that right. No, you know, don't get on Google and call me out. And, this I and I tell you, you are Peter, you are Petron, and on this rock, Petros, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This passage is dealing with church authority because what he's saying here is that the church is going to be established and we see the same language show up in Matthew 18 when he's dealing with church discipline and he uses the same language of binding and loosing. He says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There is some kind of authority that is given to humans here by God. This is a crazy thing. But God is here giving the keys of the kingdom. What do keys do? They open and shut, right? He says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. This keys language is used again in Matthew 18 when he, when he talks about church discipline. I give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, whatever is going on here has to do with the authority of the church. The way that the Roman Catholic Church understands this is that the authority was given to Peter himself as an apostle, as I don't know if it's proper, if, if, if a... If a very learned Roman Catholic were in the room, they, I, I assume that they would agree with what I'm about to say, that Peter would be like the first pope. right? And so um, they would say that the authority that is given to the church is located in these apostles that continue. And after Peter comes another, and after him comes another, and after him comes another, all the way down to Francis today. And this authority is vested in the apostles continuing to the present day. That's what is apostolicity. It's traceable through people or popes all the way back to Peter. Now, Protestants would locate the authority of the church not in a person who occupies a seat, but we would locate it in the purity of doctrine. We would say... I would say that when, Jesus, that, that when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers rightly. He gives the right answer. Jesus says, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. In other words, the rock is not Peter the man. The rock is the truth that Peter just said out of his mouth. That Jesus is the Christ. So the Roman Catholic Church would say that where is the true church? 
wherever there is somebody in the line of Peter. We would say, where is the true church? Wherever there is anyone who is believing this gospel, that's where the true church is. Whoever is believing what is true. That's the biggest difference in our understanding of the church. Um, so there have been some shifts in the Roman Catholic Church such that I need to try to be academically honest here. My intention is not to body slam the Roman Catholic Church or anything like that. I, I hope that everything that I say tonight, a Roman Catholic can say, yes, Greg, I know that you disagree with me, but you are representing what we say correctly. Uh, here's one of the things that makes it a little difficult to know exactly what they believe. Because you know Roman Catholics... Um, many times would see us as, I, don't, I can't remember the phrase, they use something like wayward brethren, wandering brethren. Like, you know, we may be true Christians, but they're always hoping that we'll return back to the mother church when we get off of doing our little thing out here in Baptist land or something like that. Um, but as it stands now, the Roman Catholic Church kind of maintains a contradiction in what they teach. So that, such that it's unclear exactly what they believe. Let me explain this in this way. In 1995, the Catechism of the Catholic Church states that outside the church there is no salvation. And what they mean by the church is their church. Right? However, they softened this immediately, suggesting that those existing through no fault of their own in false churches, which, like ours, in their mind, they may achieve eternal salvation. And so they kind of, in 1995, they kind of left the door open to people outside the Roman Catholic Church, the possibility of them being saved. Okay, that's good. Then in 2007, under Pope Benedict, um, had just, just passed away a couple weeks ago, it seems like. He was a very much a conservative. John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, both conservatives within the Roman Catholic Church. They reiterated that according to the Catholic doctrine, these communities, other churches, do not enjoy apostolic succession, like the, the continuing of the Peter and then everybody after him. We don't, we don't, we're not a privy to that. We don't enjoy that. In the sacrament of orders and are therefore deprived of a constitutive element of the church. In other words, we're, we would not be the real church. These ecclesial, that just means churchly, these, these churchly communities cannot, according to Catholic doctrine, be called churches in the proper sense. This highlights the, the divide between Protestants and Catholics. While Protestants believe that a right interpretation of the Scriptures is available to believers, the Roman Catholic Church holds that the church alone has the final say in interpretation. Uh, here's a quote. Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. And holy tradition transmits in its entirety the Word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles, the popes in other words, so that, enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, that means teach, and spread it abroad by their preaching. So, you see kind of the, the rub here. Here's the upshot. 
If there is no salvation outside the sacraments, which baptism, Lord's Supper, things like that, what we would call ordinances, if there is no salvation outside of those things that are dispensed by the Roman Catholic Church, then the Roman Catholic Church is effectively the only true church. Debates within the Roman Catholic Church between conservatives who believe that it is the only true church and liberals, some of whom believe in universalism anyway, they're not even properly Christian, make it hard for Protestants to get a grip on what the church believes. This is kind of our rub. Uh, if, you, if you're wondering you know, a good explainer about how to understand the differences within Roman Catholicism, this is one of the big deals. From the outside looking, if you're sitting here in Baptist land and you're looking out at the Roman Catholic Church and you see the Vatican and the Pope and he wears the hat, it looks like they all believe the same thing. And it's nowhere close to the truth. I mean, there are groups and of different interest within the Roman Catholic Church that make it very difficult to believe what the doctrine is. And that is why you see guys like Pope John Paul II, the late Pope John Paul II, and the late Pope Benedict XVI saying things that are always in keeping with traditional doctrine. And then that's why you see Pope Francis out here, he gets quoted saying a bunch of things. It's like, wait a second, he's saying a bunch of stuff that the Roman Catholic Church is on paper saying that they don't believe. It's because they come from two different wings of the Roman Catholic Church. Does that make sense? So, Pope Benedict, John Paul II would be guys within the Roman Catholic Church trying to hold the line. Pope Francis is trying to push the boundaries. It's just a quick off-the-cuff thing there. Secondly, if only the Roman Catholic Church can interpret Scripture faithfully, then the sufficiency of Scripture is out the window. In other words, a person cannot simply believe what the Bible teaches. They must believe the Roman Catholic Church is teaching on what the Bible teaches. What's the big deal? You know, Brother Greg, we come in here and it kind of sounds like you're saying, why can't we all just get along? Aren't we really just kind of backside of the same coin? And why are you trying to draw all these lines where we just need to... All be together. Well, efforts at Protestant-Catholic dialogue are worthwhile. And friends, we can partner on a number of worthwhile ventures. However, there's a gap that still exists. And I'm going to demonstrate this not from what we believe, but from what the Roman Catholic Church believes. They are still on record with the following anathemas. You know what it means to say anathema or let him be, let her be anathema? Let them go to hell. Right? Okay. Canon number nine. This is from the Council of Trent, still on record. If anyone shall say that by faith alone the impious are justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order unto the obtaining of grace of justification, and that it is not in any respect necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. In other words, If you believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, let him be anathema. Canon number 30. If anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or the next in purgatory, 
Before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema. In other words, if you believe that Jesus paid it all, and if you believe that you don't still have just a little bit of residue of debt to pay for in purgatory, let him be anathema. Now, do the garden variety Roman Catholics that you'll meet at Food Giant, do they know this? I don't know. I think there are probably plenty of saved people within the Roman Catholic Church. The problem is the doctrine that is on record at a number of places is what I would understand and what I would teach to be anti-gospel. I mean, we believe that we have no good works that can justify us. I don't believe that I can. And I further believe that Jesus has done such a full and complete work on the cross that there's nothing that I need to do after I die to fully expunge my sin. I believe Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Now, Protestants stand on the following doctrines. Justification by grace alone, apart from works. Secondly, Grace comes through Jesus and is not dispensed through the Mass. Number three, the Bible is our authority, not tradition. However, we do need to put a little asterisk here. This is not a license for us evangelicals to go out and just start interpreting Scripture willy-nilly however we want to. It's best done in conversation with other believers. And it is best... I mean, I'm doing a Ph.D. program in historical theology because I believe that history is beneficial, right? But, so we can learn from our Catholic, Anglican brothers and sisters, friends on this, uh, but at the end of the day, the Bible is the authority, not what men have believed about the Bible. Number four, the Pope is not an authority. Rather, apostolicity is found in confessing the same doctrine as the apostles. What did Jude say in Jude verse 3? The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Where are the saints found? Wherever they are believing that one faith that was once for all delivered to him. Number five, regeneration, which is the new birth, the opening of blind eyes that is necessary for a person to believe. Regeneration is an act of God who opens eyes, John 3, John 6. It does not in any way come through the performance of baptism. So, um, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert on what Catholics believe about baptism, but I, I do, I've read enough to understand that they believe that baptism has some kind of grace-giving effect. And so I would say baptism is necessary for every believer. Every believer needs to do it, but it's, it doesn't save you, right? Um, so here's uh, some critiques. If, if I were sitting down talking with a young... Um, a young person my age who was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm just so tired of the, you know, I'm, I'm so tired of the dry worship in evangelical churches, or I'm so tired of the smoke machines and skinny jeans and all that, 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 you know, for all of my friends that are on their way to atheism, but they're stopping at the church on their way out. Uh, if, if I were sitting down with someone to try to convince them uh, to stay in my church, I would point these things out. Number one, debates going on within the Roman Catholic Church on the nature of the church, the nature of justification. Uh, 
and even whether universalism is valid. They should cause us to temper our vision. In other words, just to, just to back off just a little bit, our vision of the Roman Catholic Church as a wholly unified institution, standing in an immovable stream of history. There's this attraction to go toward what seems like it has never moved in 2,000 years because of the stability that it provides. I would simply point out that it's not nearly as unified as it pretends to be. We got a lot of issues in evangelicalism, folks. I mean, we got our rap sheet, you know, we can go down the list. But simply saying that it's not the picture of uniformity that you might think it is. Uh, what, what seems to be happening now is that those on the left and the theological left in Catholicism seem to be holding the institutions. But it seems that the conservatives are the ones who are numerically growing. Um, you, you might can trace that back to their view on, um, on large families. Number two, notions of the authority of the Roman Catholic Church as being on par with Scripture are largely constructed on a narrow reading of Matthew 16. You see, when we read through Matthew 16, at the end of reading that passage in Matthew 16, would you have come to the conclusion that we need popes? Right? Okay, this is, this is simply all I'm saying is that the authority structure that the Roman Catholic Church has built is constructed on a very small piece of ground that may or may not support what they're teaching. I'm on the may not side of the may or may not. Okay. If the church should have an authority equal to Scripture, like if tradition should be on par with Scripture, wouldn't the Bible have told us that? Number three, the danger of salvation by works that is implied and sometimes taught by the Roman Catholic Church should cause anyone pause in evaluating their soteriology, which is just a big word for their doctrine of salvation. This is another, I'm just cautioning. I mean, this is what I would sit down across from the table and caution someone about if they're headed that way. Number four, failures in church practice are no reason to amend one's doctrine. All right? So in other words, we've got a ton of issues that we need to work through in Baptist life and in evangelicalism but failures in practice are no reason to amend doctrine, right? We believe within, as Protestants, we believe in semper reformanda, right? Which means always reforming. We are always returning to the scriptures. Why? Because we recognize that we're sinners. We need to always wake up every morning and reform. Every day is a new reformation in our life, um, so failures in church practice are no reason to amend one's doctrine. This would be throwing the baby out with the holy water or something like that. Uh, pendulum swings are dangerous. Uh, number one, two, three, four, five. Consider the Roman Catholic Church teaching that the Eucharist, which is like the Lord's Supper, is an actual sacrifice that continues. So we would say that the, that the, the Lord's Supper is a way that we remember what Christ has done. It's a memorial. We, we take this bread, we take this juice, and we remember the sacrifice that Christ has done. Some Protestants would say that, that Christ is spiritually present with us when we do that. This, this is a, an area that you could disagree on and still be faithfully Christian. Um, but the Roman Catholic Church believes that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was something that continues today in 
the Eucharist in the Lord's Supper. That that sacrifice, that you actually partake of a sacrifice again. I don't, I don't want to say a re-sacrifice of Jesus, but it's close. Um, this is just my... Uh, I'm, I'm shuffling up against the edge of my understanding of Roman Catholic teaching on that, so I want to make sure I don't speak too far. Uh, number whatever, the next to last one is. Roman Catholic Church teaches that the Eucharist confers grace, ex opere operato, which is just a Latin phrase for by the work performed. In other words, by doing the action, grace is dispensed. That sounds uncomfortably close to works-based grace, right? It would be like me saying, if you will just get baptized, then you can get saved, or something like that. I'm just off the cuff trying to come up with a, an illustration. Grace is somehow dispensed by just doing the work of taking the Lord's Supper. Lastly, there are ways... To seek depth without running to an institution that is so aligned with biblical danger. And that's what that would be the last thing that I would say. I'd like to read the Apostles' Creed in the spirit of doing stuff that is ancient. Uh, hopefully, if I on a Sunday morning print this on the back of your bulletin and ask you to stand and read it with me, you won't look at me funny because now you know why I do what I do. Because I want to hold the gate, I want to hold the line from people, uh, you know, uh, leaving evangelicalism thinking that elsewhere is deeper and more cerebral, uh, something like that. The Apostles' Creed, this is one of the first creeds. Uh, that has been confessed by the church, and it would probably be helpful if I would teach on it because there are some things in here uh, that, are, uh, that need some explanation. One of them will jump right off the page to you, but this has been confessed by the church. I would ask you uh, to, to read along as I read this that has been repeated by the church for millennia. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Um, I probably just opened up a can of worms with that. Uh, you may have a million questions, but maybe that's for another night. Uh, at this point, I'm done with sharing what I had prepared to share, but if you have any questions that maybe came to mind, um, I will do the best I can to answer them. Any questions at all that you have thought of during this time? Yes, sir. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, there are one or two of them, either practicing Catholic 
I understand. Yeah. Oh, is this about the, the birth, the birth thing? Is this about the, um, in the hospital room? Yeah. 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 Well, we've got plenty of non-practicing evangelicals, too, for sure. Any questions? Any other questions? Yeah, that's true. You're okay. You're okay, brother. Uh, Speaking of that communion, that word transubstantiation transubstantiation they believe that when the priest blesses the elements the the wine and the bread that they even though they maintain their appearance they would say they maintain the accidents maintain their appearance as bread and wine and even though they taste like bread and wine they have literally become the literal bread the literal literal body and blood of Jesus in some way. Transubstantiation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, after, I, after a couple, after, after the reading that I did a couple months ago, I should have the answer to that, but I don't. Yeah. It, because I had to do a whole thing on the Lord's Supper, but um, that's, that's an older, I know that Augustine, all the way back to Augustine in the 400s, maintained that. So I would follow Augustine on a whole lot of things, uh, but not that. Uh, other questions? Yes, ma'am. Miss Beth. You know, I don't know, but I would imagine for the most part, yes. That's alive and well. Yeah, yeah. So Miss Beth's question is, what about indulgences? I would imagine that 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 what we would call the the Catholic Counter Reformation probably did away with that, although. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And now I will also say that just as in Baptist life, um, all religion is folk. If you know what I'm what I mean by that. In other words, all religion is what it is where you are at that moment. You know, I, I heard a story about a guy uh, preaching at a church one time. And he was preaching for a while, and the congregation was very quiet, maybe 30 or 40 people there. And in the middle of one of his points, when it, when it got quiet, a man from the back shouted, Turn Jesus on! And the pastor thought, Well, I've been encouraged before, but never this way. You know, like maybe that's just this guy's way of telling me, Amen, brother, or something like that. So he kept, he kept going, and then five minutes later, Turn Jesus on! And the guy paused, and I don't know what that means, but he went on again. And then the third time, the guy said, turn Jesus on. And the, and the man said, brother, you're going to have to explain to me what you mean by that. And there was a little lamp up next to the pulpit, and it was a little Jesus. And, and forever, 
whenever the pastor went up into the pulpit, the pastor walked up the steps and pulled the little chain and turned Jesus on when he was ready to preach. Now, that's nowhere in the Bible, but for this Southern Baptist church somewhere in somewhere USA, it was what the pastor done, right? And so all religion is folk. And so you, could, you might could go somewhere in South America and find indulgences. I don't know, but um, yeah. Um, and her other question had to do with... Uh, with um, purgatory, which, you know, I had an aunt or a great aunt who always sent me the neatest little presents every Christmas, but she was, she was Catholic, and when my grandfather, who's a Baptist pastor, passed away, uh, she sent a card to my grandmother saying, we prayed for him this week, you know, like, you know, and my grandmother, a Baptist pastor's wife, said she doesn't have to do that, you know. <laughs> so, any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so you notice the C on that Catholic is a lowercase. So we believe in the Catholic Church too, right? That means the whole church everywhere in the whole world at any point in time of the people who are believing the gospel, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. They believe in the Holy Catholic Church, big, big C. They believe that they are the Catholic Church. You know, it's like not every rectangle is a square, but every square is a rectangle kind of thing. That might be confusing. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. A very broad, yep, yep. Right. Absolutely. Miss, Miss Beth is just bringing out the point that Catholic means more than one thing. It can mean very broad or universal, you know. Uh, I saw another hand. Yes, sir. Right. Yep. I'm actually, so there's a book on my shelf that's in my queue that I want to read on the Apostles' Creed. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plead the fifth on that right now. I, I'm going to do the best I can. And this is subject to me cutting out of the podcast because this could be wrong. But I think that in the history of the church, one of the things that they, what, what the Apostles' Creed is trying to capture there is that Christ, for the three days that he was in the grave, right, before his resurrection, for those three days, you know, when he was bearing the punishment of the Father, when the Father turned his face away, they're trying to somehow capture that Jesus fully took the punishment that we deserved. Now, I I don't, I'm unsure on how they understood whether or not he went to hell. I do not believe he went to hell But uh, I think that phrase, he descended into hell, is attempting to capture the truth that Jesus drank to the dregs the wrath of God for us. That's the best I can do right now, off the cuff. Yes, sir? Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's another, 
that's another area that we believe that we have one mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So we do not believe that we would have to go through a mediator. I try from time to time to even encourage people that during the invitation time of our service, I'm here to minister to you, but you don't have to get, you don't have to come through me to get to God. And so that's, you're, you're bringing up a good point. As a matter of fact, this is, this is just perfect. Because Francis is more of a theological liberal, this was, just a, this was just a great moment during COVID when Francis came out and said, because of COVID restrictions, if you can't go confess your sins to the priest, just take them directly to God. And I'm like, we had a reformation over this. Like, this is exactly like, you're right, Francis. Oh, my man, you don't need a priest. You know, if only he had spoken ex cathedra, like if only he had spoken authoritatively, you know. Did you have another? Oh, right there. I actually was talking to a couple of them a few years ago who is Catholic. Yeah. And that's one of the questions I asked. I said, why do you often test priests? And he said, because we're sinful and we can't come before God. Mm hmm. Right. And then the bottom line, we need to get back to it. Right. That is the explanation he gave me, is that mm-hmm. as sinful beings, they had to take it to the priest because they can't go right before, right before God. Right. I don't know where he was at in his belief. And, and that just highlights... Uh, so they would believe that the priest is the vicar of Christ, which is the go-between, that he's kind of like Christ's representative for the people in this area. And so that's why access to the Roman Catholic Church is so important for them because you have to go to the vicar of Christ. Um, so, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, what if he is? Yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Okay. Well, it's 7 o'clock, and I know y'all probably got the game DVR'd and stuff, and you're ready to catch up, and, and you can't even fast forward through the commercials because that's the best part, so... Um, anyway, we'll bring it to a close. Thank you. Hopefully this has been helpful to you. We'll look forward to the next question next week, and um, we'll, we'll go from there. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind to us. Thank you that you have given us a mediator in Jesus Christ, um, that, that, um, that we need no other mediator. Lord, I pray that we would be better equipped um, to, to interact with our friends, relatives who are, who are Roman Catholic, that we could have genuine gospel conversations. Thank you for all of the good things that are going on in the Roman Catholic Church. We, we do pray that wherever in that tradition, wherever the gospel is not being believed, that you would draw the people to yourself just as we pray in our tradition for all of the people that we know there are names upon names on our church roll that we haven't seen in so long, we pray that you would draw people to yourself, that you would create such a revival in our community uh, and in, in other traditions as well. We pray that you would draw people to yourself uh, and save. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.